Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, that sound means that the online meeting is on and Margaret has connected to me. But she's got a different name up on the screen and I'm not sure I've actually got Margaret. Hi. I thought, okay, we don't know anyone named Liv Griffith Garcia, but... <laughs> I was just going to check. I was just writing a note because I'm at the library and this is Liz's um, equipment. Margaret is borrowing Liz's computer, hence the name, and she's holed up at a library for our interview because the Alberta wildfires have forced her from her home. So, anyway, where are I'm you? Here. What? Where are you right now in... What community? In Valley View. Valley View. Okay. I'm sorry about what's happened to you. That's really tough. Thank you very much. <sighs> yeah, it, it's very, very gets harder as the days go on. You know, I but I'm you know a person can be feeling like oh I feel I'm being looked after. You know, it's not ideal, but I have shelter and food and everything I need. And then friends that let me on on a hall like this yeah. at the library. And this know? is, of course, rough for Margaret going through this. But the wildfires aren't the only reason we're talking to her today. Like, say, now the fires are right at my doorstep, right? So it makes it more personal to me mm-hmm. in that way. You hear that? Okay. There's another knock at the door. Cyberspace-wise, <laughs> and that is because this story is about her family. Another window pops open in our chat, and a young man with long braids smiles back, but not at me. He's smiling at his grandmother. I think your grandson is with us now. Hi, it's Laura. Hello. Hi, Fufu. Hi. How are you doing? Where are you today? I'm in Toronto. Oh, are you? And then another knock at the virtual meeting door. Hi, Tanya. It's Laura. And where's Tanya today? I'm at Madeline's. Oh, Madeline's. <laughs> nice. You guys can all say hi to each other. It's your family. Yeah, nice. <laughs> to see each other, you know, it's a treat. Thank mm-hmm. you for bringing us together. Oh, you're welcome. It's our pleasure. Thank you for having all three of you agree to talk to us. I think it's really special. So I hope you've figured out by now that I'm actually talking to three generations of one family. They're spread across the country, but they're connected in their fight to protect the earth and their people from climate change. And now with wildfires scarring their home territory and displacing their families, that fight is more urgent than ever. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Federal Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson about the wildfires, their ties to climate change, and Ottawa's new legislation for green jobs. But we start by marking National Indigenous Peoples Day by finding solutions in intergenerational teachings and love.
Um, I just want to start by asking each of you to introduce yourselves in the communities you belong to. Margaret, can we start with you? All righty. Uh, Margaret Capel, and I'm from Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation, Treaty 8 Territory. And I currently sit in Valley View, Alberta at the library, surrounded by my ancestors. Some of them are, you could see pictures in the background. These are actual pictures of people from my home reserve down the road here. And I'm still an evacuee. I've been out of the house now five, almost coming five weeks. All right, Tanya. I'm Tanya Capo. I am the daughter to Margaret. I'm also from the Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 8 Territory. I live in Winnipeg where I am a practicing lawyer. I am a mother. I am a cookum to one grandson. And I have um, started graduate school on a part-time basis with the University of Arizona doing an LLM in Indigenous People Law and Policy. All right. And James? Yeah. Hi, I'm Miskakun James Harper, also proud citizen of Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation, Treaty 8 uh, territory. And I'm joining you here from Toronto and in the offices of Enerstar, where I work full time as a business development manager, essentially bringing the technology of energy storage to life uh, across Canada. And I also um, am the co-chair of 7Gen, empowering Indigenous young people into the clean energy space. I sit on the board for Indigenous Clean Energy, where we empower Indigenous communities and nations with the great technology of clean energy. And I'm happy to be here. Then we invited you on the show to talk about intergenerational climate activism. Um, but Margaret, mm -hmm. your life has been turned upside down because you've been forced out of your home. Tell me about what happened the day you found out you couldn't return home. I'm a retired social worker, uh, but I'm an elder at large, I call myself. And I was in Grand Prairie on that very day. I left home 7 a.m. to go to a seminar on brain science. I do work in trauma. And uh, around noon, my phone started blowing up, literally, and the fire had already started. So I just kind of carried on because I never thought I would be, it would get to that point by the time my day was done. So four o'clock, I call my girl and I say, I'm leaving Grand Prairie. Do you need anything from here? And she said, well, you can't come home. What? No, everybody's evacuating. What? So I literally said, okay, I got in my car. I went to the closest hotel. I might as well get a room, I said, because I can't go home. I thought, oh, it'll be just a temporary thing. And I'll be able to go home. And I was not able to go home yet. Wow. And it, it's like kind of you go to this place of utter is how is this my life today, every day or every other day still? It's still not totally sinking in. This is the way, the way it is now for me here. Tanya, what, what was it like for you to hear about what was going on for your mother and for your nation? 
It was really tough. I, I was hearing about it and watching it as much as I can over social media and hearing from my family. And my youngest daughter was there at the community at the time, and she was texting me throughout the day. Oh, I said, texted her, hey, there's a fire. You better pay attention. She's like, okay. And then an hour later, she sends me a photo. Mom, I can see the smoke. I said, okay, you guys better get packing. I think you should get ready to leave. She's like, okay, an hour later, mom, the fire is right here. And the cops just came and told us we have to leave and I don't have a ride. And uh, it was really stressful. So I had to call around and see who was nearby to go and pick her up. And, you know, worrying about my mom, but not really because I knew she wasn't there, but all the rest of the family hoping that there was no injuries or loss of life during that point in the evacuation. But everybody is okay. Yes. Okay. And and James, you you sit so far away from it all, um, and, and I'm just wondering what it's been like for you. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a level of of um, I don't even know what the right word is helplessness um, of of being, you know, knowing that there's so much happening to to the people that you love and to your home, but there's not really much you can do about it, right? And you know, my first response even is to to a lot of things that happen at, back at home is I better go there right away. When in fact, that's the opposite of what of the response. In fact, we need to get people out of there, right? And out of harm's way. Um, but for, for a long time, I felt very powerless, I guess. And I started to reflect more on, on the work that I do um, after attending things like COP, for example, and, you know, working in the climate action space. You know, it's it's very well known how little emissions Indigenous people worldwide contribute. Meanwhile, Indigenous people are disproportionately more affected by climate change. And here it is in front of our faces. And, and it's very real for, for me and, and my family. It makes me more motivated, uh, I suppose, on, on a much larger scale to keep going on the work that I'm doing in this space. And I want to talk about those those broader issues and and the kind of work that you're doing in a moment. But I think listeners would like to know from you, Margaret, what what's the condition of your home? Do you know what's happened to it? Yeah, well, I first went back finally uh, last Friday, and it it it's um, going. Just I, even now, I feel very choked up. I live in a beautiful forested area. What used to be, before I went in, my girls had gone in a few days after because they remained working. And they described it as, you know, the Lord of the Rings. There's a, you know, the forest Mordor. That's how it looks, desolate, barren, black. Then once you get, I got to my place, it, it, you know, I had to brace myself as I turned to the driveway, how I would react to see the way my place was. And, and so it's not looking like it used to, that's for sure. And it took out like a shed, a couple of sheds. It was so close, and, but it's still standing, my house. But again, then there was damage, uh, flood damage, because we had a great rain. 
um, about two or three days and it just rained and rained and it never soaked in because the land is so dry and airy. And not only that, I also want to say we have traditional trapping that's ways down the road, Fox Creek area, that whole area, there there was fires there too. And my dad had a cabin that was like my solace place, my refuge too, and that burnt too. We can't go there like the way we used to either now. So this is really very, very hard emotionally for me. In, in so many ways. So, I, I can thank hear you that. For listening. Margaret, yeah. I can hear that. And my heart goes out to you. Um, you've thank obviously you. suffered a, a lot of, of pain. Um, Tanya, because of your own training, lawyer, Indigenous rights activist, environmental activist, you've been involved in Idle No More and Greenpeace. When you listen to your mother talk that way, is, is she just a living example of climate injustice? I want to say no because I don't want to put any kind of label that takes away from the humanity of the experience. It's just so angering, you know, it's really, I was spending a lot of time in my mind mentally enraged as the fire was starting and going on and there didn't seem to be any real interest in what was happening to us. And and there were other Indigenous communities as as well who were also, I felt, not getting the kind of attention, say, the non-Indigenous places were getting, like the the towns of Edson or even when Slave Lake had the fire and Fort McMurray had the fire. You know, Indigenous communities, people are like, what? Oh, there's a fire there? Or I didn't even know there was a fire there. Like one week later, I'm like, why is this? Why is this the case for us as Indigenous people when we're in a crisis? It's not even anything that warrants talking about um, publicly through the media or anywhere else. So it's very maddening. And I did not want to use those terms to describe the experience because I want it to be real, a real experience, our, our human response to what's happening to our homelands, our ancestral spaces. Well, I apologize for using that language then. It wasn't certainly wasn't meant that way, Tanya. Um, but I, I wondered, James, for you, when you were saying that, that this, what's happening to your grandmother is making you feel more committed to the kind of work you're doing, do you think that you're being listened to when it comes to the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think... Um there's definitely gaps still. Um, You know, the energy industry at large is still very, very not representative of the kinds of voices we need to have in there who really want to advance uh, the needed climate action that we need right now, essentially. Like for me, that's what motivates me to do this work even more um, because it's very personal. It's extremely personal. It's very tied to where I come from and my family. I will say that, you know, I, I share some of that sentiment that my mom just was saying and that I, I also feel enraged. I feel like, you know, this is so unfair. You know, we're, we're still as a community, as a, as a nation, as a peoples, we're, we're still healing from all the effects of colonization. All of us have our personal journeys that take a lot of work to navigate. 
um, the, the history that we all have. Um, and now we also now are in this place where, where climate change is very much destroying our homes. I can't help but think about how unfair it is. Um, but I also don't let that sort of stop me. In fact, I use that as, as again, that motivation to, to keep going and especially to communicate that to our community, to especially to young people and say, we have a responsibility in front of us, whether we like it or not. Um, and we need to act fast. And I know that we have the passion and the drive to do so. And I'm very, very hopeful because there are so many young people in our communities that want to champion that, that message. And that's um, that, and that's you passing yeah. it on to the next generation. Um, probably some things that you got from your own mother and grandmother. I'm I'm wondering if you can take me to where your concern for the land and the earth began. I think from day one, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> when I was born. Um, my mom and my my cuckoo they instill a lot of very important values and teachings. Things like respect and you know balance and coexistence with the natural world around me. That was sort of something that I grew up with just believing in and understanding that responsibility. One thing that always comes to mind is my discussions over tea and bannock with, with my cuckoo. You know, I was chatting with her about renewable energy and I was like, I'm going to do a master's and it's going to be solar and wind and it's going to be great. And she's like, that's so great. <laughs> um, sorry, cuckoo, if I'm recalling this differently, but how I remember it is, you know, very proud, of course. Um, but then she said, you know, it, it's interesting what this energy, this clean energy, you how you think of it. Uh, because, you know, in Cree, uh, I, I think you said kakyo eawin, or something like this, yeah. uh, literally translating to it's all around us. And you're describing energy way beyond the physical sense. It's it's like metaphysical. It, it is It is the things that connect us with the world around us. Um, and we have to be intentional on, on those relationships as well. Um, and it really brought in my whole perspective of, you know, the relationships that we do have and what that energy looks like as well. And it really connected the dots for me as to how clean energy really is that pathway, I guess, that we need to follow through on that really balances our ability to coexist with the land. Uh, Tanya, I can see you smiling, <laughs> listening to your son speaking. I'm wondering, as you were raising James, what were the kind of the foundational teachings that, that you worked to instill in him? I was thinking about this conversation that we were going to be having and the idea of being thought of as an environmental activist and, and thinking about it in, okay, so how am I an environmental activist? What do I actually do and how do I how does this define me or, you know, thinking about that and realizing that um, it, it's not a conscious decision in the sense of one day I'm waking up and I'm going to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and save the world and protect the environment and everything like that. But it's more been a matter of how I was raised and that's as a Nihio, a Nihiasquio, a Cree woman and, and our worldviews in that in our own language and our own laws and that is just inherent in how we are raised so it's not like a conscious effort or decision that we make on a daily basis it's just 
embodying those principles and laws that are ours as Cree people. And the result is good relationships, you know, um, being responsible. One of the key laws for Cree people is uh, a word called Wakotawin. And very loosely translated, it's about your relationships. So, so your relationship with yourself, with someone else, your families, your kin, um, the environment around you. So it's just really been about that, you know, just continuing that on, just, I guess, just being that way. And that just happened to be the result, I guess. <laughs> that's that's modest. <laughs> Margaret, I'm wondering, this is your daughter and your grandson speaking. I'm wondering what it is like for you to, to hear them and their words. Well, you know, as the matriarch of our family, it's very, very humbling to hear. And it's a knowing now, you know, really that I have that it's going to continue. It will just keep continuing on the teachings you know, that they themselves will carry forward and their children and their grandchildren. I'm like my chappy. I have chappies, my great-grandchildren, you know. And uh, I, I appreciate that even him, one of them, that Tanya's grandson, and he comes and hangs out with me in the summer. And we spend time outside. And he's learning to be uh, that way too. So it, it, it's beautiful to hear it. You know, it, it's a tough, we're going through this major tough time, but it's very heartening to know that the baton, you know, keeps on going. The flame carries on forward. And James is, you know, taking it further beyond here or beyond Canada, you know, where he goes and spreading the word that way. So it's, it's really a, an amazing gift. Thank you. Oh, well, I, I, I think that that's a good place to, to end our conversation. I know that the three of you are going to continue talking to each other. Um, I, I can just see the bond between you. It's quite heartwarming for me. I'm quite touched by all of this. But M Margaret, I sincerely wish that things turn out as, as well as they can for you at home. And, thank you. And Tanya and James, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for speaking with us, with me. Thanks for having me. And you can all say goodbye to each other if you want, or I can just get off the line and you guys can keep talking. <laughs> just all say bye. I have. I got to get going. Guys. Okay. All right. Yeah. Have Thank a good you. day. Goodbye. Nice bye. to see you all. We checked in with Margaret again after our interview, and she's still in a hotel. It's been about six weeks. She's waiting for the repairs so she can move back into her home, and she says that will be another week or so. 
but she's adamant that whatever it takes, she is moving back in. I will do what I need to make it back to my home. It will need cleaning, you know, walls because of some of the smell and all that. No, I will, I will work at what I need to do for myself or get somebody to come and help me do it. A woman of such determination um, and care for the world around her and for her family, it was quite something to be talking to all three of them and in the wake of that terribly devastating wildfire and the wildfires across the country that have displaced so many people and destroyed homes. It's obviously quite a worry for so many Canadians. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth? We're on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, another nomination for a climate champion who's building a solar-powered boat to help his home community. But first, it was originally called Just Transition. Now Ottawa has labeled it Sustainable Jobs, whatever the name. The federal government's promise to support oil and gas workers making the move to clean energy jobs has been long in coming. On Thursday, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson introduced legislation aimed at satisfying labour, business and Alberta. No small task. I spoke to the minister shortly after the legislation was tabled in the House of Commons. Hello. Hello. There is no small amount of anxiety among those who work in oil and gas and those who work in the businesses and communities who rely on them. I'm wondering how this legislation would calm their fears. Well, this legislation is a piece of the broader Sustainable Jobs Action Plan that we introduced, I think it was in February. And the focus is on, you know, seizing the economic opportunities that actually come through a shift to a lower carbon future. And those include oil and gas. I mean, at the end of the day, we're going through a transition over the next uh, number of decades where oil and gas is still going to be used in significant quantities, even in combustion applications. And beyond 2050, there will still be significant amounts of oil and gas used in non-combustion applications. What we need to do is to ensure that we are reducing production emissions. And this, this whole plan, including the legislation, is about reducing those emissions to make Canada's oil and gas sector competitive in a low-carbon world, and seizing the the economic opportunities that are going to create great jobs across the country very much, including in Alberta and Saskatchewan. We spoke a few weeks ago with a Newfoundland man named Chris, who does inspections for industry, including oil and gas. The CBC has agreed not to use his last name to protect his job security. And he told us that for the future of the planet and his family, he would prefer to work in renewables like wind. Uh, there's definitely opportunities, but they they seem to be limited and uh, definitely don't pay as much as the oil and gas or other other mining and extracting uh, industries do. I have had offers to go work in wind farms. It just wasn't financially beneficial to me to do it. 
So what would you say to workers like Chris who who don't want to go and work in, in a renewable like like a wind farm because the money just isn't as good? Well, I would say a couple of things. I was actually in Newfoundland two weeks ago, um, and we have put into place and are actually just in the process of putting into place a tax credit to incent the development of offshore wind and the production of hydrogen from the electricity. And in those tax credits, people are required, uh, companies and, and uh, proponents are required to pay prevailing wages. So at the end of the day, there are going to be good jobs in those spaces that pay well um, that, that people can actually ensure that they go to. But as I say, many of the folks in the oil and gas space for the next number of decades, and, and even in, in many cases well beyond that, are going to continue to have good jobs even in that sector. But th- there are also these o- older oil and gas workers who may not be able or have the time to train for a new renewable energy job. Uh, what supports will those older workers have access to? Well, uh, certainly um, there will be supports for, for training if, in fact, there are, are uh, transitions in terms of skill sets that end up being required. But I would just go back to people somehow seem to think that when you move towards a net zero world, there is no continuing role for the oil and gas sector. And that is just wrong. Um, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, says that you're going to still need a quarter of the amount of oil and half the amount of gas that we actually produce today. You're just going to be using it in non-combustion applications that don't cause climate change. But I'm not sure that entirely addresses the concerns of older workers, because if they don't, if they're not able to train for whatever reason, and I hear what you're saying, there will still be jobs, but there may not be as many jobs and maybe they'll lose their jobs. What support would they get from government? Well, this is actually one of the key purposes of the legislation. So one of the things in the legislation is the creation of what we call the Sustainable Jobs Partnership Council, on which there will be significant numbers of labor representatives. That is intended to advise the government on future uh, policy-related activities, both in terms of job creation and in terms of worker support. So that's exactly what the legislation is intended to do, is to ensure that there is a continuous conversation about what needs to be done as we evolve towards what what must be, what science tells us must be, a lower carbon future. Now, we spoke earlier this year to Angela Luke. She's an assistant professor at York University in Toronto and a mem- member of the Big Stone Cree Nation about what a so-called just transition can mean for Indigenous communities. Have a listen to her. I come from Alberta, where a lot of my family has worked in the oil industry. So I think a just transition should take into consideration those communities that are very dependent on a single industry. Because we see when there are big drops in our economy, like in 2008, Indigenous workers, racialized workers, low-income workers were more greatly impacted. They're the first ones to lose work, and they lose work for a longer period of time, and it takes them longer to rebound. So, Minister, how would this legislation help protect low-income workers, Indigenous workers, and resource-dependent communities, which may be most vulnerable as oil and gas jobs dwindle down? And they will. I I know you say that there will still be them, but there will be, if the plan works, fewer jobs in the industry. Well, there will be the, the amount of oil in particular that the world will consume will decline. And, and I think every projection shows that as you see, you know, zero emission transportation technologies being deployed in larger numbers. It's not it's not as, as straightforward with gas because gas actually can, with utilization of carbon capture, be turned into hydrogen with virtually zero carbon emissions. But certainly in that context, we have to be sensitive to uh, folks who work in the space um, and certainly to communities that, that rely on the workforce. 
that again, I go back to is exactly why we are we we are in this legislation setting up the partnership council, which will have indigenous participation, and requiring that there are updated sustainable jobs action plans released every five years to ensure that we are taking account of the progress that is being made and the and the additional things that the government will need to do to ensure that we are creating the future that is going to be a good one for everyone and every part of this country. Right, and the the legislation is supposed to make the government. It says in in the literature, the gov- it's supposed to make the government accountable and transparent by creating and tabling that action plan every five years, starting in December of 2025. Uh, this idea of accountability and transparency, how does a simple plan accomplish that? It's not like a goal or a target, is it? Well, it, it does accomplish it because it is a legislative requirement that governments actually take this seriously, and they actually have to bring forward a plan that will be transparently available to everyone. So there is enormous amount of transparency. That's exactly the, the, the point of the legislation. It is in many ways not dissimilar to the Net Zero Accountability Act, which we put into place a couple of years ago when I was Minister of the Environment. But it seems there's a big difference there. And when you talk about the Net Zero Accountability Act, you're setting targets, and the accountability is whether you achieve those targets does this legislation, or will you be in these plans setting job creation targets? Well, so that is uh, that is certainly something that will be looked at as we move forward, and it's certainly something that the Partnership Council is going to be seized with, is providing input as to how the, those action plans should evolve over time. We released in February an interim action plan, but the first formal action plan will actually come out in 2025, and that's very much part of the conversation. But I'm not hearing targets. I, I mean, it says in the legislation... The minister will set out milestones to be achieved. What is what is a milestone in this context? Well, milestones and targets are not that different. Um, it, it essentially means that you're setting out uh, objectives that uh, that you can measure progress against. I mean, no different from how a business runs a business person runs a business. So, but we shouldn't expect to see the government saying we're going to create a hundred thousand jobs in the next five years. Well, I, I'm not going to foreclose any of that. That's exactly why we're continuing to do consultations with folks about finalizing in, in 2025 the first action plan. And I'm not, I'm not going to you know, prejudge what that's going to look like. There's going to be um, work that's going to be done. The Partnership Council uh, is going to weigh in, and we're going to actually ensure that we're moving forward. But at the end of the day, the overall objective is a strong and prosperous economy in a net zero world. And and we have put into place enormous number of measures to, 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 to focus on that, including in the recent budget where there was over $85 billion in investment for a clean industrial strategy to yeah. create jobs and economic opportunity across the country. And I want, to come back to, I want to come to that in just a second, but just one more question on the accountability issue. What are the consequences if the government fails to meet its milestones? Well, as I say, the, the first formal action plan will be available in 2025. Um, at the end of the day, in the same way for the Net Zero Accountability Act, the ultimate sanction is that you actually have to be transparent about your inability to actually do the things that you said you were going to do. And, and ultimately, in a democratic society, voters will then judge you. All right. Let, let's get to the investments here. You, you, you've talked about the, the amount of money going in. The, this year's budget earmarked $40 billion for clean electricity that's partially aimed at job creation through those tax credits. You have any idea how many well-paid jobs you expect to see created through that? With tax credits, uh, the way those work is is it depends a little bit on the take-up, right? So um, we expect to see significant work in the part of many of the provinces and territories to help green their grid and to build the electricity grid so that they can actually electrify transportation and buildings and everything else. 
They can actually um, um, provide for industry uh, clean electricity that increasingly most industries are demanding um, as sort of the price of entry in terms of investment. Um, so we expect to see thousands and thousands of jobs, but it's not just that. I mean, there's a clean hydrogen tax credit where, you know, Nova Scotia is looking at five gigawatts of, of hydrogen coming on stream by 2030. I mean, there are enormous opportunities that are going to create jobs. As I said to you before, um, my biggest concern is not that there are not going to be enough jobs, it's that there are not going to be enough workers to fill the job. I, I just want to come back to oil and gas. The, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, has said that expanding fossil fuel production is, these are his words, inconsistent with human survival. Why does the federal government still subsidize the industry? In terms of of, uh, of investments in fossil fuels, um, the government has made a commitment to phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. We already have done that internationally, and we're in the process of actually putting that into place. We are doing that two years before any other G7 country. So we are walking the walk. Well, we could have a longer conversation about efficient versus inefficient subsidies, but I I do just want to ask you one more question. And I want to shift the conversation to what what is staring a lot of us in the face or um, in the nose right now, including you when you're in Ottawa. You've had to breathe that smoky air lately. And we spoke earlier to a great-grandmother from Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation in northern Alberta who has been displaced for more than a month because of wildfire. You know it's been an unprecedented fire season it's early, it's intense, it's coast to coast. Do you think this is linked to climate change? Well, I think, I think it's pretty clear. Um, you know, climate scientists will tell you that it's difficult to link a specific event to directly to climate change. But they will also tell you that we should expect to see more and more and more of these kinds of events as a result of climate change. Um, And, you know, Canadians, unfortunately, will have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of this is baked into our future. We must mitigate carbon emissions and we must do so quickly in order not to make the problem even worse. But we are going to be seeing a number of these things going forward and we have to learn to adapt. And so mitigation is critically important, but adaptation and, and looking at how we actually make our communities more resilient is also going to be critically important. But when you say that it's, it's baked in, what, what we're already facing, if the country continues to pile emissions on top of emissions and the world does as well, then that baked in aspect is just gets worse and worse and worse. Why shouldn't the government move more quickly to cut emissions and expand renewables in the name of putting the brakes on this kind of destruction? Well, that's exactly what we are doing. I mean, we've committed to net zero by 2050, which is the same as our G7. That's is, is it fast enough? Amb- that's enormously ambitious for a country like Canada, which actually is a major uh, oil and gas producer, is a big country, is a cold country. We have, uh, we have an aggressive target for 2030 that we are on track to achieve. We are moving through this process rapidly. It is absolutely the case that we need to look at how we can, all the time, how we can be more ambitious. But Canada is being enormously ambitious. And I would encourage you to have a conversation with governments in other parts of the G7 or with the International Energy Agency who will tell you that Canada is the leader in this conversation. I will. We have spoken to other governments and they say different things, Minister. But I I mean, this is a serious conversation. This kind of destruction for people is just such a harrowing thing. And it really, is it fast enough? Is your plan fast enough to be able to save communities and homes and people for what's going to be happening on an escalating basis in the years to come? It is a harrowing thing. There is no question about that. And that is certainly the fires that we are seeing today. It is the floods that we are seeing. It is the melting glaciers that are going to have 
significant impacts on water flows in many parts of the country. It is a climate emergency. We need to act with haste. We are ambitious, and we are always looking for ways to do more. Minister, I thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you very much. And of course, we want to know what you think about this legislation and everything Minister Wilkinson had to say. Shoot us an email, earth at cbc.ca. So far, reaction to the legislation has been mixed. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith released a statement on Thursday. Smith says the regulation of the energy sector workforce is a constitutional right of the province. Here is a quote. Alberta will not recognize, cooperate with, or enforce any attempt to phase out our province's oil and gas industry or its workforce. This is non-negotiable. I look forward to upcoming discussions with the federal government to secure alignment between its and Alberta's emissions reduction strategies. The president of the Alberta Federation of Labour, Gil McGowan, told us he's pleased with the legislation, saying it gives workers more control over their jobs and wages. One of the things that we in the labour movement really like about it is that these discussions under this new legislation will not be just discussions between the fat cats who usually make these big economic decisions. So, you know, that's a first for for Canada. It's a departure from business as usual. And uh, it's exactly what we in the labour movement asked for. And you might remember a few weeks ago, I spoke with Melody Lepine of the Miccosoo Cree First Nation in northern Alberta. Her response... She wants the federal government to commit to -to nation-to-nation relationships with Indigenous communities when developing its sustainable jobs plan. Anthony Eshquega, an energy coordinator with the Gull Bay First Nation in northern Ontario, calls it a good first step. But he wants the government to commit to providing on-site skills training in Indigenous communities. It's tough when you've got to leave your family for an extended period of time, and the process is so stringent building that capacity within their communities to fit into these trade jobs, to fit into these clean energy jobs, to have a stronger impact and be able to rack our own projects up. And Climate Action Network Canada calls the legislation a welcome step, but says it lacks a vision for moving away from fossil fuels. Again, you can add your perspective. Just email us, earth at cbc.ca. And we have time now for a few other climate stories in the news this week. Amid concerns about the influence of fossil fuel lobbyists at the UN's annual Global Climate Change Summit, comes word of a new rule to make them more accountable. At the next meeting in Dubai in the fall, oil and gas lobbyists will have to register their affiliation. Critics say it's one way to expose what they see as a conflict of interest. And just a note, the chair of the upcoming talks is himself an oil executive, in the United Arab Emirates. A new report from the International Energy Agency foresees a significant slowdown in the global demand for oil by 2028. High prices and concerns about security of supply will speed the move to cleaner energy sources, according to the report. And the first sector to see a drop in use will be transport, it says, By 2026, electric vehicles, the use of biofuels, and improved fuel economy will mean less demand for gas. 
Indigenous communities in Alaska and BC have declared a state of emergency over declining Pacific salmon populations. First Nations want a bigger say in managing watersheds and salmon stocks, and they want to work together across borders to try to protect the salmon runs from collapsing. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. We received an interesting email from listener Owen Stokes in Toronto. Owen writes, I recently heard Bill Nye, and for listeners who don't know, that's Bill Nye, the science guy, in Toronto. And he said the most important thing anyone and everyone can do about climate change is to vote. So I'm going to get off the bench and participate in Toronto's mayoral by-election. It's the first chance I've had to vote since that talk as a single-issue voter, climate. However, none of the leading candidates are talking about climate change. Are there any resources that have compiled the platforms of the candidates, especially highlighting climate and green concerns? I want to vote for the person who will address climate change as a top priority. Well, thanks for that question, Owen. Now, there are 102 candidates running for mayor in the by-election on June the 26th. Our colleagues at CBC Toronto have broken down where the frontrunners stand on climate change, and you can find that on their website at cbc.ca slash Toronto. And Owen, your question got us thinking about how voters can parse a candidate's climate plan no matter the election or where you are in Canada. So our producer, Matt Muse, dug into it, and he brings us this cheat sheet. People say to me, Bill, Nye, science guy, (laughs) what can I do about climate change? If you want to do one thing about climate change, it's vote. Everybody, please vote. That's Bill Nye in a YouTube clip from NBC, repeating a common piece of climate action advice. But is it true? And if you're a voter who's keen on climate action, how do you choose who to vote for? Matt Hoffman is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, where he co-directs the Environmental Governance Lab. Our solutions to climate change, our way forward on climate change, is almost all about politics. We have the technology, economics follows politics. And so if we can get the politics right, that's going to be our best hope for moving forward. And Catherine Harrison is a professor of political science at UBC, where she specializes in energy and climate policy. I applaud people taking individual actions in their lives, but we're not going to solve this problem through voluntary action. We need changes in public policies that ensure that the systems change, and that's done through voting. So how do you look at a field of candidates and decide who has the best approach to climate change? Both Hoffman and Harrison say there are a few key things you can look for. Number one, urgency. If someone is serious about climate change, they're going to be telling voters that we need to take relatively significant action relatively quickly. And so if people are only focused on 2050, they're not being that serious. Which leads to number two, specifics. Rather than just talking about how important climate change is or promising some support for technological development down the line, there has to be some specifics. And number three, honesty about some hard truths. There's a real tendency to exaggerate the reductions, to pretend that some magic will materialize in the future. There is no miraculous policy that is going to solve this problem by imposing all the costs on someone else or with no cost. People that are 
serious about climate change are also going to be telling voters and promoting policies that say we're going to need to change our relationship to fossil energy and that that is going to be a big change for how the Canadian economy works and how our everyday lives are. Now that doesn't mean that things are going to necessarily get worse. It does mean that there's going to be a challenge and a transition. So what about the policies themselves? Well, that depends a lot on what type of election it is, local, provincial, or federal. And this can get complicated because there are a lot of overlapping areas of responsibility. Local governments control the design of cities. So how much space there will be for active transportation, like walking and cycling, um, how much investment there will be in public transit. Are we going to continue building cities that set aside a very large fraction of the space for individual automobiles? So how about at the provincial level? Now you're talking about larger questions about energy supply, moving towards as much as possible 100% emissions-free and as much as possible renewable energy. They have authority to regulate individual large sources, to provide funding for individuals to invest in things like electric vehicles and heat pumps. They establish provincial building codes. They, in many cases, are implementing at least some elements of carbon pricing. And the federal level. There's a real role for the federal government to play in promoting this notion of a just transition. And that's already, that's been controversial. And I think the federal government is in, is in the best position to not only orchestrate that conversation, but also to put in place economic policies that can start to ameliorate those, those issues. So a lot there to think about when you're making your decision at the ballot box. But Hoffman has one other suggestion. You have to tell people that you're voting and the why you're voting. We need to have individual choices be social and be visible. Politicians need to know that people are voting on the basis of climate change. Parties need to know that. That people are paying attention and really value climate action when they're making their decisions. For What on Earth, I'm Matt Muse. Thanks, Matt. And thanks to listener Owen Stokes for inspiring that cheat sheet. And if you found it helpful, go ahead, share the episode. We are always looking for ways to help you take climate action, whether, let's say, strategizing your shopping list, understanding sea level rise in your community, or, I don't know, choosing (laughs) a planet-friendly pet, whatever. If you missed it, you should listen to our story from last week about how to pack a go bag in case your home is threatened by wildfire or flooding. So if you do have a question about climate solutions in your everyday life, send it to us and we'll try to find the answer. And because we love to hear your voice, why not send us a voice memo? Just look for the voice memo app on your phone, hit record, and then share it with us via email. And I bet you know the email address by now. But if you don't, it's earth at cbc.ca. told you about solar-powered homes, even solar-powered concerts. But how about a solar-powered boat? Well, our next climate hero is working on it. Mitchell has got a really great project. Um, We're really enthusiastic about 
the idea of bringing not only the solar boat component, but also the solar education component to the community. That's listener Ray Burridge Goodwin, the Youth Mentorship Coordinator for Indigenous Clean Energy. And Ray nominated Mitchell Sulier Lamb as a community climate champion. Mitchell is a 20-year-old engineering student at the University of Toronto. He's from the Wikwemakong First Nation, which is located on Manitoulin Island in Ontario. The plan is to have a used pontoon boat. And because of the larger surface area, I would like to use that to put solar panels on and see, I guess, how much power can be harnessed and used. And hopefully it'll be 100% solar powered. And that is Mitchell, of course. He made the plans for the solar boat, including tracking down an electric motor. This summer, he's hoping to travel to his home community to build it. And he wants to get high school students involved in the process. I kind of want to get more Indigenous people or Indigenous youth into STEM programs. By STEM, Mitchell is referring to science, technology, engineering, and math. And eventually, if it all works out, he plans to donate the solar boat to the local high school to use to support canoeing trips. Ray says it could make a big difference. Really, you can see that ripple effect already just with Mitchell's work um, in his community and in his school system. So we're just very excited. We're happy to be on board and we're really, really proud and excited to see where Mitchell goes next. Yeah, we'll be watching too. And we want to hear about your climate heroes, the people in your community who are making a difference for the planet. Send us an email about who you're nominating and why, and we just might feature them on the show. The email is earth at cbc.ca. And I want to tell you now about an interview we've got coming up next week. Emily Kelsall is a 25-year-old climate activist from West Vancouver. Her story shows how intertwined climate change and mental health can be. She recently came through a crisis after years of engaging in increasingly intense activism that eventually landed her in jail. So there's kind of like two stories. One story is a story of someone that's trying to take action. And then underneath, there's this dark, I guess, shadow self of someone who's taking actions compulsively, not because they want to and feel that it's the right thing to do, but doing it because they feel like they have to. And if they don't, something bad's going to happen or the blame is on them. I was doing everything I could, but my brain was pressuring me to do more. It got scary. Now, that's just a part of her story. She's now home, much healthier, and ready to share her experience. That's climate activist Emily Kelsall with me in conversation next week. Remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. I read them. I really do. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper, Zoe Yunker, and Missy Johnson. Producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matt Muse, and Rohit Joseph. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.